When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Campsite Media. Hello, can you hear me? Right, okay. Hello? Hello? So, what do you want me to say? Let's do it. And it's just, um... Hello? Chameleon. Chameleon. Season 4. Scam Likely. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> Michelle was in a bad place in May of 2013. She'd lost her job. She was low on confidence. She barely had enough money to get by. One day, she got a call on her cell phone. Didn't recognize the number. The voice had an Indian accent. They called me stating that I hadn't paid a payday loan and that if I don't pay $1,600, I'd be sent to jail. They'd have the police, the local police come and arrest me. And I was freaking out. <laughs> it was true that Michelle had taken a payday loan, but that had been many years earlier, and she was certain she had paid it back. The caller was adamant that she was wrong. So when these people said, no, you have to pay this money, we'll send the police to get you otherwise, you stayed on the phone with them for how long? Actually, I hung up on them. They called me back. They were really persistent. They called me back like about four or five times in like three days. And I'm still saying, no, I'm not paying this. I'm not paying this. But after like the fifth time, I'm like, fine. Tell me where to send the money. I mean, they were they were very persistent, and they're yelling at me and saying, you have to pay this or we're going to send the cops to you. And I should have just blocked the number, but I didn't know. So I paid them. The $1,600 she sent them was practically all the money she had. When the rent came due that month, she wasn't able to pay. She turned to her parents for help. So I called them. And they said, you need to contact the police and let them know what happened and see what they can do. So um, my parents did lend me the money after they said that I was really dumb of what I did. But I did go to the police department and I filed a police report. I'm uh, Tom Sheehan. I'm a detective with uh, Naperville, Illinois Police Department. We're about uh, 25 miles uh, southwest of Chicago. How long have you been with the police force in Naperville? Ages. I uh, started here in uh, 1986. So you're a, you're a veteran. <laughs> you, you could call it that, yeah. Tom was the detective assigned to Michelle's case, and he followed the money just like Chris and Dave had, the DHS investigators. Tom started with prepaid debit cards the voice on the phone told Michelle to buy. The money was transferred to Green Dot Cards, that special kind of card that can buy money orders. When Tom looked at the data he was able to dig up, it led him to an address in the Chicago suburbs. So myself and my partner went out to uh, the address out in Glendale Heights and tried to make contact with whoever was living there. And uh, I spoke with this guy who said, at first he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know about any cards. And I'm, I mean, I started explaining to him that, you know, they all got mailed to his mailbox. And he was like, well, are you telling me that people broke into my mailbox and took my cards? I go, well, 
I says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm finding out that these cards were cashed out at a lot of ATMs in this area. So when I get the video back uh, and it shows you cashing these cards out, we're going to have an issue. At that point, he automatically just said, you know what, I, I'm working for a, a relative in India. He told me I could make some extra cash on the side if I were able to help him out. So with this. eventually this guy admitted he had Michelle's money. The man that I interviewed in, uh, in Glendale Heights was more than willing to make restitution for the loss to Michelle. He wanted to get out of this case as fast as possible to extract himself from the investigation. So that's how we got Michelle's money back. It's exceedingly rare for telefraud victims to get their money back. Michelle was surprised and thankful. But being a victim of fraud, it was traumatic. Not easy to get past. You're in a place where you're... It's so dark around you that you're trying to see the light and they're offering you a way to get this one weight off your shoulder and you just, you take it. And then you realize you just got screwed and you're just like, oh, man, and you don't want, you don't want anyone to know, but you need help. So I just, I feel for the victims and I want to put the people who made them victims in jail for a long time or take their money and give it back to them. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cam Likely, the fourth season of Chameleon. I'm Yudhijit Bhattacharjee. Episode 2, Chase the Runners. When Chris and Dave had started looking into the first wave of complaints from victims, it seemed exclusively like a scam targeting immigrants with fake immigration-related threats. There were tons of victims, but they were mostly Indian nationals who had recently moved to the United States. But after six months of investigating, Chris and Dave were realizing that the scam was larger than that and that it was evolving. The scammers were also targeting people like Michelle with a payday loan scam. And other callers were getting calls purporting to be from the Internal Revenue Service. They had realized something that made them millions of dollars, which was not everybody in America is an immigrant, but everybody pays taxes. Yep. And the IRS scam really took over at that point. And then, then your, your uh, victims were no longer foreign nationals. They were, they, were, they were everybody. 2013 was kind of almost the trial run for these guys, and 2014 was when they just threw kerosene on the fire. A lot of the kerosene seemed to be in the Chicago area. The guy who had Michelle's money, the guy Detective Tom Sheehan had tracked down, was far from the only person there involved in the fraud. A lot of people in Chicago were popping up on Chris and Dave's radar. So Chris and Dave flew there, Chris from Houston and Dave from San Francisco. What both Chris and Dave wanted to do was follow the so-called runners. These were the guys, and they were almost all men, hustling in and out of grocery stores and banks. They bought money orders with the stolen funds and then got that money into the banking system. From there, it could be moved anywhere. 
Chris and Dave knew that the runners were an important cog in the machine. But how did they work exactly? How organized were they? Was there a system they followed? None of this could be learned just by subpoenaing transaction data. The agents needed to actually follow them. They knew it wouldn't be easy, because things rarely go as expected when you're doing surveillance, and one screw-up can kill an investigation, or put you in a lot of danger. Early in his career, Dave had that kind of experience. He was tracking a suspect, watching him go into a Walmart. I was a good 150 meters away down the telephoto lens, and the guy walked in the front door, and then he walked out of a side door, and somebody called to me, the car was moving. This guy drove right to where I was at, and he pulled up and damn near pinned me, like T-bone, like put his bumper on my door. And I was anticipating for him to get out and cut my door. I mean, I had my gun out waiting to shoot him. He just sat there for like three minutes, never got the car, and just drove away. I don't know how he knew I was there because I was literally 200 yards away from him. And yeah, he was never behind his bumper. There must have been somebody else in the parking lot or something. And so, as he prepped to surveil the runners in the Chicago area, Dave knew the risks. Collaborating with the Chicago area police to do the surveillance was challenging for another reason. At first, they could only coordinate via group text until they got radios. And then there was the weather. Chris and Dave, both coming from warm weather states, weren't prepared for the Chicago cold. I remember showing up there initially, the first time we went out there was in like April. And, just, and they had that art, they had a polar blast. Yeah. <laughs> Standing in a parking lot, getting yeah. ready to go do a surveillance and just like, just quaking. I had in like my a polar boots. fleece on, like a light. Yeah, light, and I was like, jacket. oh my God, yeah. how do you guys deal with it? Was, it, was, it was just cutting right through us. Yeah. And I was like, okay, guys, we're just doing a surveillance. We can, re- let's just talk in the cars. Let's go. But it wasn't, it wasn't really that bad. Like, um, did that give you like added respect for the runners? in Chicago, like how hard they were working in the Chicago cold. Yeah, I mean, they had to get, they had to walk all the way from their car into Walmart and back like 40 times a day. That was freezing. The agents and the local police began staking out the apartment complexes where the runners lived. They'd wait for the targets to come out and start driving, then follow them in multiple cars. One day, Chris and a colleague were following a runner who had just left his apartment. They were puzzled by his movements. He made some pretty erratic moves, and we thought, did we get burned? Uh, Man, maybe we're not good at this. Our surveillance is pretty poor. The guy stopped in the middle of a four-way intersection. The agents were worried he'd sensed he was being followed. Then they saw him get out of his car and enter a liquor store. The standard procedure in such cases was for the agents to go into the store a bit later, flash their badges, and get the receipts. So what we saw from the exterior was a guy going in, you know, coming out really quickly and getting back in his vehicle. And we thought he just made a dead drop or he just did something or whatever. And then, so we followed him, watched him sit at the park, just down in a bunch of brandy. And that ended up being the surveillance that day. He didn't actually do anything. The runner was so erratic because he was drunk. Some of the other runners drove as if they were drunk too. While tailing one of them, Chris noticed there was something else going on. At one point, I pulled up next to him at a stoplight because he, you know, he was, he was swerving a little bit. And um, I said, I don't think he's paying attention. The agent riding with Chris began taking photos. And um, the guy never looked up. And he, I mean, he was sitting at the stoplight literally on one phone looking at another phone, like intermittently snacking on a candy bar. His boss who was sitting next to him was um, equally distracted. 
These guys might have been sloppy at times, but they weren't amateurs. This wasn't just a job. It was their whole life. As you're looking at the progression over the, the time that we were investigating these guys, you can see how hard that lifestyle was on their bodies. I mean, you're driving around the country in the back of a Honda, just living behind a windshield. Um, it was like the opposite of when you see somebody go to like the International Space Station. Right. And they wither. Yeah. Yeah, it was like the, the opposite, opposite of just sitting in a car. But I mean, they just, just, just eating gas station food. Gas station year. food and drinking far too much and traveling around. It was a tough lifestyle. So I did have um, a, a, a certain amount of a certain amount of professional respect for the, um, you know, for the way those guys um, operated and endured. And they, I mean, you yeah, say a, what you will be, about them. Be, they were hard workers. They were hard workers. They were hard workers. All day long. And I mean, there's a lot of... And they worked, you know. I mean, how many miles did they put on those cars? We I, went, I we went, we went and saw, it, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was like, a, a, I think it was like 100,000 miles like in a year. Yeah. You know, these cars were just, they're driven like to the moon, yeah. basically. And those hundreds of thousands of miles followed a pattern. The runners were organized. They were working as one big team. But seeing that wasn't going to lift the veil on the entire scamming operation. Chris and Dave knew they needed to go further. That's after the break. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Yes, IRS, how can I help you? Yeah, I received a call from this number. Okay, and what was the call about? Uh, they said something about my attorney and to call some kind of paperwork. This is what a scam call sounds like. We got this recording from the federal investigators. Okay, and is that I'm speaking with Chris Wong? Yes, that's me. This caller is claiming to be from the IRS, and he tells this guy, Chris Wong, that he owes the IRS $1,200. There's no way I can come up with $1,200, not even close. So how much you can come up with? I, I have less than $75 on me. I see. The caller isn't going to settle for that, so he makes a threat. Then I'm sorry, unfortunately, I need to disconnect this phone line and I need to start my legal procedure. You just reach the home, wait for the cops. Within 30 minutes, they will be there and it will be big trouble for you. You will be arrested and you will be behind the bars for five years. Okay, Chris? No, right. that's not okay. No. Okay, but 
I don't, no problem, but we need to follow some rules and regulations. I'm bounded with my job, and unfortunately, we have to take the legal action against you. So be ready to get arrested. We will meet in courthouse tomorrow. Me? Yeah. No, but they, they don't need to arrest me. This is, this is... That was enough to frighten Chris. So he said, okay, okay, I can try to figure out a way to get more than $75, just don't send the cops. A new voice comes on the line, giving him orders that you are now familiar with. Go to the ATM, try to withdraw the $500. Once you have a $500 with you, you can let me know after that I can guide you further what you need to do in order to submit at this payment. All right? All right. Hold on. I'll, make sure, I'll, make sure I'll, I'll call you back. Call you back at this no, number? No, 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 no. Do not disconnect this phone call. I'm be with you over the phone. You don't worry. This is a toll-free number. You wouldn't be charged anything for this call. So just hold this line. Be with me over the phone. Do not disconnect this phone call. In a lot of ways, this sounds like your typical scam call. But there's one big thing that's unusual about it. The scam victim you're hearing? His name isn't actually Chris Wong. I'm Dylan. I've been with the Department of Homeland Security for 16, 17 years. Dylan was one of Chris and Dave's closest collaborators, another key member of the crew of guys that gave a shit. He was in the middle of the investigation, and he was on this call because he wanted to understand how the scam worked from a victim's point of view. Why a victim would fall for it, what tactics the scammers used, he stuck on the phone for well over an hour. So long, the scammers didn't always keep up their professional demeanor. Bless you. Is that a sneeze or a burp? Sorry, but I'm not getting. I'm not getting. What are you trying to say? Oh, made some kind of noise. Sorry. All right. All right. But Dylan wasn't on the phone to simply mess with the scammers. He was role-playing 100%, trying to learn their strategies, actually following the instructions he was being given. That was one of the ways that I could psychologically be convincing is if I'm actually doing it. And it's a good thing I did because one of the tests, you know, they say, are you in your car? Yeah, I'm driving to the store. Okay, honk your horn. Are you, are you still driving? Yeah. Can you please blow the horn? What's that? Can you please blow the horn? Oh. All right, all right, great. This was all part of what Dylan was learning, how the scammers got into the heads of the victims. Asking Dylan to honk his horn sounded innocuous, but it was part of a strategy to make sure he was actually following orders and to dominate him. I say jump, you jump. So can you write down your case number? Case number? Yeah, hold on. Hold on just a second. I don't even know okay. if I have a pen. Give me just a second, sir. Yeah, take your time. To the caller, Dylan sounded compliant, like he'd taken the bait. So they have all of these ways that are time-tested to really get to the bottom of, is this going to be a true victim or not? And, you know, they, they've done this so many times that they, they just keep building methodology 
and it aggregates over time to where they are methodically managing these scenarios for maximum impact. The way Dylan puts it, the voices on the phone are almost hypnotizing the people they call. They are using a lot of subliminal techniques, um, neurolinguistic and other techniques. One of the things I hear frequently that I think falls in that category is they ask a lot of questions in the beginning of the phone call to get you to say yes, right? So they want to develop the pattern of you saying yes so that 15 minutes from now when we get to the part where you're going to go to Walmart and buy these store value cards, you're saying yes. Psychological insight. That's one thing Dylan brought to the team. The other? He was an expert at tracking down digital information that most people could never hope to find. You could call him a master of cyber-stalking. His specialty was combing through immigration databases, car registrations, banking records, you name it, and then connecting the dots. If you're only looking at a small piece of it, um, you're just not going to make those connections. You have to look at everything, and, it, and this can take years, as we found out. Yeah, this is almost like a big data problem, you know, yes. like an AI type of problem, I'm sure. And we were working it manually, which was very painful. He means doing it without any help from software tools. Dylan is shorter and slender. He looks boyish, the opposite of an intimidating cop. If Chris was the calculating strategist of the team and Dave the battering ram who could push through all roadblocks, Dylan was the analyst forever connecting the dots. He's quiet, deliberate, but beneath the surface, he has this high-voltage intensity and a Christian faith that runs deep. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a paradox, right? Because I believe we're called to pursue justice, right, in this world. Um, but I don't believe justice is possible in this world. Um, it's only for God to sort out. And so, although we pursue justice, you know, it may um, inevitably not come in this life, right? But that doesn't mean we don't pursue justice. We'll be right back. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. Dylan worked out of the Department of Homeland Security's San Francisco office 
collaborating with Dave as his day-to-day partner on the case. Their friendship went way back, though. Before they came to Homeland Security, they trained together in the Federal Agent Academy. It was an important element of the case. Dave and I were like brothers, right? And that includes the, the bickering. And we, we definitely both have different personalities and um, that complement one another to where it's like the perfect combo to work a big case. Um, and so the, the getting there can be very <laughs> bizarre to witness for um, everybody else. Um, but in the end, effective. He goes out there and just digs and digs and digs. And he doesn't take no for an answer either because you'll tell him, like, stop doing something. He's like, no, I'm going to keep working on it. I'm like, come on, man, like, go home, see the, see the family. You know, like, no, I can't. Um, he's just nuts. It was Dylan, along with the others, who identified a key figure in Chicago, a man named Mitesh Patel. Mitesh was in his late 30s, and he had moved to the U.S. from Gujarat in India years earlier. The guy seemed to run a large network of runners, giving them their daily assignments of moving money, so the agents took a special interest in him. Dylan discovered that Mitesh owned several cars. The agents had a hunch that the cars were being used by the runners he controlled. One of these vehicles, a black Honda Accord, couldn't be traced anywhere in Chicago. Dylan started looking for it, searching through databases, looking at license plate footage from around the country. He finally found it, almost a thousand miles away, in Dallas. Dave is on the phone all day long, every day, fueling calls. And in between, we're yelling at each other between the cubicles, this, this, and this. And so Dave picks up the phone, he calls down to Dallas, and he's like, you've got to get out there. There's a Honda Accord in your area. You've got to get out there and get eyes on. A DHS agent in Dallas follows the car. The two men in it drive around, visiting stores. Eventually, the agent sees the car pull up outside a hotel. The riders get out and check into the hotel. Then, as the DHS agent continues to watch, one of the men comes out of the hotel and goes back to the car, collects all the trash from inside the vehicle, and gets rid of it. He cleaned out the black Honda, and he threw away the stuff from the black Honda and threw it away. And lucky for us, it was a yellow Dollar Dollar General bag, and when our agent looked in the dumpster, it was the only yellow bag in there. We're like, oh. How do you know it was that, the same bag? He's like, it's the only yellow bag in the dumpster. So he grabs the yellow bag. Bonanza. In this yellow bag was a huge bundle of money order receipts worth $500,000 and about 50 used green dot cards. When Chris and Dave and Dylan heard about the find, they immediately knew its significance. The receipts the investigators had gotten a hold of were from money orders made in the time frame of just a few days and by just one of many crews of runners involved. This suggested there could be hundreds, if not thousands of victims being scammed every week, each one losing anywhere from hundreds to tens of thousands of dollars to the scammers. The sheer volume of the receipts and the high dollar amount was confirmation that Mitesh Patel who these two men were working for, was a high-value target.
Dave and Dylan needed to keep tabs on the black Honda, and for this, they needed a warrant to put a GPS tracker on the car. This is in the morning in Dallas time, so it's two hours different time out in San Francisco. So it's, you know, 8 a.m. We're, we're frantically writing up a search warrant, probable cause to put a tracker on there based off of what they're telling us. How'd you put a tracker on covertly? Uh, well, uh, I mean, you just basically got to hope that they're gone long enough and somebody just kind of whistles and runs over there and dives under the car and finds something metal. Soon, agents were putting magnetic trackers on multiple cars linked to Mitesh Patel. Tracking those different cars was going to allow them to see the full extent of laundering activity that Mitesh was overseeing. But keeping the trackers functional wasn't a trivial task. Yeah. So the batteries run out periodically, too, and you have to change them out. So I, I can recall Dave and I flying to Chicago, meeting in Chicago one time because we were getting close to a battery needing to be changed out. Yeah, it was like snow. It was a little bit of snow on the ground. Yeah. We're just freezing. We listened to it. San Francisco Giants game. Yeah, it's right there in the World Series that year. Yeah, um, and uh, and crawl. I remember crawling under that car that night, and Dave whistling because somebody was walking the dog by, and I was half my body was under the car trying to find a metal bar to, or trying to find the tracker to replace the battery. And um, so yeah, it got a little it got a little hairy at times. From the tracking data, the investigators built a map showing just how much Mitesh's runners were driving around. There were multiple crews hitting dozens of grocery stores and Walmarts every day, traveling all over the United States. For instance, one crew would start in Chicago, drive to Milwaukee, then to Denver, then Nashville, then Dallas. It turned out that Dallas was a frequent haunt. There are more Walmarts per capita than anywhere else in the U.S. in the Dallas Metroplex. After Dallas, they would hit Vegas, sometimes drive all the way to Los Angeles, then Columbus or Indianapolis, and then back home to Chicago. At one point, the agents saw something unusual going on with Mitesh's runners. Until then, the trackers had been showing the crews working through cities around the country. When you look at tracker data, it's like looking at a map, and it's got all these data points on it, and it's just a GPS. And, and these data points, in our case, were like little brown triangles. And so you could see all the places that the, they stopped. And then on you know one day in June, you just see these cars just beeline back to Chicago. Turned out, Mitesh had called all the runners in for a team meeting at corporate headquarters. He was about to travel to India, presumably to meet with the masterminds of the operation. And he felt that some of the runners were slipping in performance. One of them had flooded a hotel room. Some had gotten pulled over for negligent driving. Mitesh got upset at the guys for screwing around, for not making their quotas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what stood out most to Chris was that despite their occasional slip-ups, the runners' movements and activities were carefully choreographed. In each city, there was a pattern. Dylan, analyst extraordinaire, figured it out. We would come to find out that they would go to a city, and day one, they would go to all the stores in the southeast quadrant, for instance. The next day, they would move to the northeast quadrant. The next day, northwest quadrant. And they would break the city into four quadrants. But why? The runners just needed to move money. Why couldn't they just have done it all in Chicago, which has no shortage of stores like Walmart and Kroger? Why travel all over the country? And once they were in one city, why go to different quadrants instead of hitting the same spots until the job was done? The agents eventually realized that this was a clever tactic. So no detective in one area could really get a handle on what was occurring. 
The scammers had deliberately set up a system where the runners were never in one place for very long and never went into the same store more than once every few weeks. If they had stuck around, a security officer at a store might have become suspicious. If their visits were infrequent and spaced out in time, no one would notice. And they learned something else tracking all of Mitesh's cars. The yellow bag in the dumpster had revealed that the scam was big. But now, it was evident that it was way bigger. And as we later learned also, a crew of two guys driving a Honda about every 10 days could launder a million dollars. So two guys, one car, million dollars every 10 days. Over the course of a year, that would be $35 million. And there were multiple crews working just like this one, 10 or more of them, which meant... The money was staggering. You know, that's 300 plus million a year, potentially, that these guys could launder. And so that's why every crew became important to us, because they're laundering money on an industrial scale. The investigators had been working the case for over a year. Dave had taken his first stab at probing the scam back in January 2013, the case that went nowhere. And now, in the summer of 2014, the investigators knew a lot. They knew where the runners were working in the U.S. They could track them in real time. They had their faces, names, addresses. They had records of thousands of transactions. Step back question. Why didn't you just swoop in on the runners and arrest them? Weren't you feeling bad that the scam was continuing and that these guys were continuing to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions even? We had a lot of conversations about that. We had seen runners get arrested. There was a lot of whack-a-mole going on around the country. And our concern was stopping the network. And so we wanted to do as much of a headshot as we could. And so we kind of decided pretty early on that th this scam's gonna continue whether we pick off these runners or not. They're just gonna replace it with another guy. They're gonna have a, you know, the next man up mentality. But if we were able to put together a large case where we identified $300 million in fraud, use the time that we had following these runners and getting into their communications and doing traffic stops and trash pulls, and all the data collection that we could do, building up the network in India, and we were able to do a single indictment of the entire conspiracy and organization all at once, maybe that would get the attention to shut this thing down. And that was the attitude. But to do that, they needed to figure out just who the real masterminds were and what was really going on in India. He still managed to go for another 200. He took that money from his friend, and that was my first ever. Uh, what do you say? A sale. We used to tell, say this is a sale, <laughs> but it is not a sale, yeah. Right. Means this was something I never would have believed could happen. That's next time on Scam Likely. Chameleon is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Scam Likely was produced and written by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, and me, Udigit Bhattacharji. Callie Hitchcock 
and Yiwen Lai Tremuen were our associate producers. The show was fact-checked by Sarah Ivry. Sound design and original music by Mark McAdam. Additional music by Samba Jean-Baptiste. Special thanks to Campside's operations team, Aliyah Papes and Doug Slavin. The executive producers at Campside are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Josh Dean, and Adam Hoff. <laughs>